All right, 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We'll finish chapter 1 tonight. So if you want to find that place in your Bibles and then stand with me, we'll get right into it tonight. And then, I know you love it when preachers do this to you, I'm going to read from Matthew 17. So I'm actually going to start in Matthew 17, read the first nine verses. If you want to just listen, uh, you can do that. But if you want to turn there as well, so stick your finger there maybe at 2 Peter 1 and then turn over to Matthew 17. We'll begin reading our text there tonight. So the Bible says this, And after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and they were sore afraid. And Jesus came. And only as Jesus could, he touched them. He said, Arise, and don't be afraid. And they lifted up their eyes, and there was no one there save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until, he says, the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. All right, now 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have your place there. Verse 12. Peter says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance." For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Who were eyewitnesses? Well, in the story we just read, Peter, James, and John were. He says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We'll get to the rest of those verses here in just a few moments. Let me pray, and then we'll be seated tonight. Father, thank you for a good day today. Lord, thank you for speaking to us today. We love your word. And uh, Lord, did not our hearts burn within us this morning to meet with you in a special way. And Lord, I pray that the church at Eastland would always be a church filled with people, passionate hearts for you. And Lord, I pray that you'd meet with us once more tonight as we finish uh, this weekend and this evening as a church family, that you'd speak to our hearts and make clear to us tonight the intent and application uh, from your word you have for us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would guess tonight that all of us have had a loved one die. It could be a relative, a friend, or church family member. 
When a loved one dies and they have time to consider and reflect on their death, they are often more intentional in what they communicate. So let me ask you this question tonight. If you knew you were going to die soon, if you were diagnosed with something, it was revealed to you that you would die soon, what would you want to communicate to those that you love most? Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so that's my, that's my uh, sermon there, Pastor on Mother's Day. There we go. It's a heavy thought. What would you tell your church family, us here? What would you say to us? What would you tell your friends, your parents, your children or grandchildren? Perhaps, for many of us, it would be to enc an encouragement to love and to serve God, to stay true to His Word. And at life's end, what would matter most to the one dying than that the ones that they love live a life passionately for God? And when we boil it all down, that's what we really care about. I, need to frame, I want to frame the passage tonight with, with two thoughts. So bear with me before we get to the, the main heart of the sermon this evening. Number one is simply this. Peter makes it clear to us that he is at his life's end. And that's what the text communicates. So verse 14, he says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus has shown me. So he says, God revealed it to me that very soon I'm going to die. And in verse 15, he says, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease. So after I'm gone, I have a mission, and I want to make sure that you remember these things because I'm about to die. The time for him to continue his ministry and his exhortation to believers was limited. And it's like sand running out of an hourglass. He's watching in his life, because God had revealed it to him, the last grains are falling. He wasn't going to die from cancer or some terminal disease. He was going to be canceled by the culture in which he lived, not on social media, but with his lifeblood. Because his message wasn't popular, it wasn't accepted, and it wasn't approved. And so this letter is his last shot at imparting what matters most to him to the people that he loved. And the letter gets intense. So the last two weeks we've kind of looked at this idea of growth. And, and Paul begins this transition in verse 12 to be on the defense against false teachers who are teaching false doctrine in the church. In chapter 2 he absolutely just abandons playing defense and now he begins to play offense. But the letter gets a little intense here as he speaks about his death. And then here's the second thought I want to I make sure that we understand as we frame the words that he wrote to us tonight. At one point in his life, Peter had failed Christ, and it almost broke him in every way. It almost broke his, it broke his heart. It broke his spirit. It broke him physically. And, and the man almost didn't recover from it. And so in response to this brokenness, in response to betrayal of his master, Christ offered him redemption as he does to us. And he gave him a mission. And he said, I'm going to redeem you, Peter, and I'm going to give you a mission. And in Luke 22, Jesus told Peter before he ascended, here's your mission. Strengthen thy brethren. It's what I want you to spend your life doing now, Peter. And so he spent his entire life doing that. Strengthening, encouraging, exhorting, lifting up, sharpening, chastening the brethren. Strengthening them. And so in verse 12, as we begin this text or this transition, he says to them, wherefore, I will not be negligent. 
He says in verse 13, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to fulfill the mission Christ gave to me. It's to strengthen the brethren. And then he specifically says this in thir verse 13, to stir you up. You know what it means to be stirred up? Have you ever had something wake you up in the middle of the night? Maybe this past week with the 99 inches of rain <laughs> that we received and the 100,000 lightning bolts coming through the skies, right? There's maybe a few nights this last week that were a little restless and then something just wakes you up because that's what the word means. Stir means to awaken. And so here's Peter and he say, hey, it's, it's, it's my job right now. If you're not paying attention, if you're not listening, if you're not hearing, if you're not doing, I want to make sure that I stir you up, that I wake you out of sleep, that I, if, if you could hear this, a lightning bolt would strike in your heart, stir you up. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, this is my job, and this is what God's called me to do, and so this is what I'm going to do, because I'm about to die, and I can see the time's about to run out, the game clock's about over for me, so this is my final message. So is what he writes a big deal? It's a big deal to Peter, and it's a big deal to the Lord, and it has to be a big deal to us. So what does he communicate in the rest of chapter 1? Well, here's, here's the thought in a nutshell, that they would fully remember and that they would fully trust the Word of God that they had been taught. It, it sounds so basic, and it is, and it's simple, and that's what he is passionate about. Remember God's Word and trust God's Word. It's just the simple things sometimes are the hardest to master. And so he begins by saying, I want you to remember what you've been taught. So verse 12, he says to put you always in remembrance of these things. Verse 13, by putting you in remembrance. Verse 15, have these things always in remembrance. Anybody see a repeating pattern here in very short succession? I want you to be mindful. I want you to remember. Forgetfulness can have really negative consequences attached to it, can't it? Have you ever forgot where you parked your car? <laughs> that could be really annoying, even in today's world of, of key fobs and cell phones, right? That could be dangerous if you forget where you parked your car. And I won't take time to tell you the stories on myself, but I have. You forgot your phone at home maybe before? Or a child? <laughs> maybe you forgot your anniversary? It could be dangerous. Maybe you forgot Mother's Day. We won't go there. I was at Sprouts this past week in the checkout line, and I saw a magazine entitled The Power of Memory, The Story of Our Lives. And so I'm studying the word remembrance, and so of course I'm like, that's interesting. Grab that, flip through it a little bit, open the first page. And so the, the first page was the introduction, and the introductory thought was, or title was this, Why We Remember. And so the bold quote or the poll quote there on the first page was simply this, it comes down to the survival of the fittest. He who endures remembers where the food is and where the predators lurk. <laughs> Those are good things to remember, aren't they? It's pretty elemental. Where the food is and where the predators lurk. It's one of the main reasons why we need to remember. And they were charging money for that advice. The quote is in the context of the material world. But let's think about that in the context of the spiritual world. Remember where the food is 
Survival of the fittest. Survival of the spiritually fit. Remember where the food is and where the predators lurk. This is what Peter's communicating. Because we understand that in the material world that we live in and exist in in this moment where our tabernacles are. But there's another world that the Bible teaches about that's going on right now too. And Peter's saying, don't forget about the spiritual world here because it's incredibly important. Don't forget where the spiritual food is. Don't forget where the spiritual predators are. are. And I'm going to call you to remembrance where to get the food and where to avoid the predators. And that's what he spends this entire letter writing. See, he wasn't just concerned that they would or could forget. He was also concerned that they wouldn't desire to remember. There's a difference between those two things. One thing says, I might forget something unintentionally, and another says, I'm not going to remember or I'm going to forget intentionally. I I don't want to remember. See, we desire to remember where physical food and predators are, but when it comes to our spirituality, we sometimes allow our faith to be forgetful. And Peter knew this danger, and he's putting us on guard There are some things we don't forget because we want them. I guarantee you, if we went to Walmart tonight, every one of my kids and myself included know where the ice cream aisle is. There are a lot of other things in the store. I don't have a clue where they are, but we know where the ice cream aisle is. But there are things we do forget because we don't desire them. And so maybe for some here, we don't like to eat healthy or exercise. And so it's convenient to put it out of mind and to forget about it. Don't like vegetables, forget them at the store. So too often we forget things we don't want to remember. I may know people are going to hell. I may know my neighbor's going to hell. The guy lives next door to me across the street. I may know my coworker's going to hell. I may know a family member's going to hell. But I don't like remembering that. I don't want to remember that. And so, it's a convenience to forget. I know, or I may know, I'm supposed to practice sacrificial love for my wife. That I'm to love her at the very least as much as I love myself. But, it's easier to forget that and to be demanding of her, and to insist on my way, and not listen. I may mentally remember that God has called me to a holy life, that He warns me about not living a holy life, that there are real predators out there, and there's things that could damage me, but those are things sometimes that I want to indulge in, and so I may fail to concern myself with that, living a holy life. And it's just easier to forget about those things and not think about them. I may know I need to be disciplined in my thought life. But it's easy to forget the disciplined part of thinking because I want my mind to be free to think whatever thoughts it wants to think about other people and other circumstances. Even though God gives me a responsibility to pluck those weeds from my mind and to think good and right thoughts of others. But I forget that. And Peter is challenging them here. Hey, look, I'm about to die. 
And I want you to call to remembrance and I want to stir you up. You have a responsibility to remember the things you've been taught. Don't put them out of mind. Don't act like you don't know. He says you do know and you need to remember and you need to pay attention. But it's not just that. He says, I also want you to trust what you have been taught. Trust it. Put your faith in it. This past week, I was able to go to a conference in Kentucky. And I took some classes on nonprofit leadership and administration. These classes were from 8 in the morning till 5 at night, two-hour workshops with 30-minute breaks in between. Took a lot of classes. One of the classes I took was a communications class on the perceptions, the culture, and the expectation of Gen Z. The presenter's name was John Lee. He was from a creative agency named Lerma. And he designs all sorts, uh, his team of 60 people that are under him in this one division, they, they do creative agencies, uh, or creative ads for all sorts of different companies, some big companies, some that we would know. Dallas Cowboys would be one of them. Cheerios, General Mills, some of those big names like that. He had a slide deck with almost 100 slides that we went through in these couple of hours we spent together. And it, it stirred me. And so I asked him later if I, he would email me the slide deck. So he did. There's a lot of content. I won't go into all the content tonight. But there were a few slides there and a few things he said that really connected with the sermon tonight. And I asked him if I could have those so that I could share them with you. So uh, Andrew, put the first slide up here. One of the things that he talked about was the trust index. There's a, there's a place called the Edelman Trust Barometer. You can Google this. And they do a global uh, study of trust in humanity. As of 2021, the trust index is in the red at 48. Trust in institutions, in governments, in churches, and you name it, in biz, small business and NGOs across the board has fallen to one of the lowest places it's ever fallen. Less people trust in general than they ever have before. Uh, go ahead and go to slide two, Andrew. Their report, and I know some of these are difficult to see, but the report states that trust in all information so sources is not just low, but right now it's at record low. And so there's some of the charts, and you can see where the graph starts. On the far left is 2012. On the far right is 2021. And you can see how trust goes up and down in different institutions. But in general, trust is falling off the map. In slide three, go ahead, Andrew, when I say the next slide, just, just present it. You can see the current levels of trust in each kind of institution. And so it starts with, and it'd be very difficult for you to see this, but the very top is small business, and that would be where people have the most trust. Then the military, with 30% being a great deal of trust, the police, the medical system, the presidency, and after the presidency, the church or organized religion, then it goes to the US Supreme Court and down from there. So it's not just that we have a trust problem in America. We have a trust problem in the church. In slide four, I believe it is, you can see here how trust has not just fallen in institutions, but in the church. On the far left, in 2001, trust was at 60%. And in 2021, you can begin to see how it has fallen significantly. And so because trust has fallen, that has implications. So slide five. Trust has fallen other things, including attendance. And so you can see here, and, and, and this is fascinating to me because, because of the pandemic and because of COVID, 
we understand that church attendance has declined, and it's a major concern if you're paying the news, attention to the news at all. There's weekly, there are articles, headline articles about this, currently, still ongoing. In, but I, go back to that one, Andrew, I'm sorry. Okay, and I want you to see this. In 1940, self-reported church attendance in past seven days was gently above 40%, rose around 1960. And I want you to see that number, 40, held steady through about 2010. But after 2010, it wasn't just the pandemic. We've been on a downhill slide since 2010, and it's dropping rapidly. The pandemic just contributed even more to that. And you could see that in the headlines. I mentioned that ago, a second ago. Andrew, go ahead and go to slide six with the headlines, and there's just some of them, just, just from recent months as U.S. church membership has dropped, and it's continued to be reported. Slide seven, America's religious preference in Christianity itself is dropping significantly. And so you can see Christianity has always been the religious preference of America, but that preference has dropped significantly between 1950 and 2020, and it's not coming up. And so what's happening, slide eight, other things are filling the void, and they're doing so intentionally. And I want you to see this. This was from one report that they reported that non-religious Americans look to secular communities for support and guidance. And one of the things they're being taught in public universities today is that by offering, and this is the part highlighted, by offering communal experiences, positive reinforcement, and exclusive rituals, and jargon, brands can fill secular consumers' religious voids. In other words, they know what the church fills in our lives, and they're seeking to fill it in different ways, and the church is on the losing end of that idea. Okay, next thing. So this is implications as Christianity begins to die in America. This is the boomer generation. And I want to ask you to raise your hands. I think we're fairly well represented in terms of age spectrum here across the audience tonight. But those who identify as LGBTQ in the boomer generation, 7%. In the millennial generation, the next slide, 26%. In Gen Z, it's 30%. And that number continues to rise. Okay, next slide. These are some issues that have come about as well as a trust has fallen. So this says index to all adults, which basically means if you take the population and that whatever that number is, that's 100. So anything above 110 would be significant. Anything below 90 would be significant, okay? So we understand that because these numbers represent their index to all adults across demographics. So in the boomer generation, I feel strongly about issues participating in protests. It's, it, they, they don't. They don't trust in protest. They think we need to do things a different way. Millennials, 105. Gen Z, 121. I consider myself pro-life. So we can pass all the legislation we want. It doesn't change the heart of man. 124 for boomers. They believe in pro-life. Millennials, 90. Gen Z, 77. This is the world that we're going to be living in. Consider the issues of LGBTQ rights to be important. Boomers, no. Millennials, 115. Gen Z, much higher. Continues to rise. Next slide, there on issues. These are generational gaps related to patriotism. And you can see that the red is Gen Z, the light blue is Gen X, which would be ages 39 to 54. Gen Z would be ages 15, uh, 18 to 38. And then the boomers ages 55 to 91 would be the dark blue. And you can see patriotism, religion, belief in God, having children, 
they're similar in, other, in some other areas, but in those things specifically as it relates to the church and the things that we believe, there's an incredible difference between them. What's the next slide, Andrew? One in three younger adults say they have no religious preference. And again, you can see there, boomers identify as conservative evangelical Christian. That number's in the green. And then it begins to dip for millennials and Gen Z. I have no religious preference, 20% boomers. But now millennials and Gen Z, they are are more concerned about that. I consider myself a spiritual person, 67%, 45%, and then 40%. Next. 60% of Christian youth are leaving the church after graduation. Last Sunday night, recognizing our seniors, it's a big deal. We love these kids. We want to stay here. And so, what does this translate to? Next slide. Youth groups, attendees, this is what's reported for our young people. They don't have a general firm grasp. These are kids in our churches today on the basic message of the gospel and Jesus. Is there any correlation between that? And the trust barometer falling. This man taught that it did, and I would submit to you that it does as well. See, in today's world, we have all of the knowledge, but we also have all of its evil in our pockets. And it's right here. The world has shifted so much, and there is an increasing level of distrust in our world. People don't trust anyone. They don't trust anything. And perhaps Peter's words matter more to us today than they have to any generation that's ever existed. Because what you trust, it matters. And Peter is writing this to us. And so I want you to hold these thoughts we just covered in mind as we look at these next few verses. So look in your Bibles at verse 16 with me and help, and, and help me read this together. If we have not, he says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, but... We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Okay, so in Peter's day, there were some fantastic stories being told about these incredible gods that were, that were Greek gods and Roman gods and all these different types of gods. And they would tell some, some really fun and incredible stories about these gods. And Peter writes this, those are great fables, but we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Fables equals the Greek word mythos. It's where we get the English word myth. Mythos mythos or myths were often used as mechanisms to teach religious principles to people. Okay, And, and, and just in parentheses, they still are. So be careful, the television, the videos, and the iPads, and everything else that your children watch, because myths are still being used to communicate a principle. And we have to be guarded as parents. So here is Peter, and he's writing to people who are surrounded with these ancient religions and stories from the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Egyptians, and they came up with all sorts of stories. Okay, so modern day equivalent, it doesn't begin to to be an equivalent, but think for our purposes today, Star Wars. Okay, Uh, Lord of the Rings, I'll keep it really, really clean here. Any, Any Marvel movie you want to throw in there, all right? So these are myths. These are great, depending on your view, could be a great story or not, but it's a story. They excite us, they entertain us, they delight us, they move us. But as much as we wish Yoda existed, he does not. I'm going to try to say that like Yoda would say it. Exist, he does not, right? So here's these false teachers. Now this is important. And they are dismissing the truth of Christ 
return and who he was as a person by attributing the apostles' teachings, what they were saying, and they were telling them, the people, well, these are actually fables and myths too. So they're saying Jesus Christ is the equivalent of Yoda. Okay, no, 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 not exactly, but that's the idea. In other words, he's just a story too. I mean, yeah, we've got these crazy fables, but, but you do too, and they're no better than ours. They were saying that what Jesus offered is really cool. It's just not real. You can't trust him, and you can't trust the stories that are told about him because they're crazy. I mean, who would really think that someone could rise from the dead or, or walk around and, and, be, and, and suddenly be healed or someone that was lame? These are great stories, but they're myths. And that's what they're teaching. But that has implications. Because if the stories about Christ aren't real, well, then Christ isn't returning. And if Christ isn't returning, then there's no prospect of future judgment. And if there's no prospect of future judgment, then the motivation for living a righteous life is suddenly lessened. And so Peter is emphatically declaring the coming of Christ his death, and his resurrection, they are not fables. They are not myths. How do you know, Peter? Good question. Because he saw them happen. So there's this incredible event that we read at Matthew chapter 17 when I had you stand a few minutes ago and you were just getting settled in. It's called the transfiguration. It was an affirmation of the truth of the scriptures and there appeared on this mount Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he was dressed in white. And he was shining bright. And there appeared with him this man named Moses and Elijah. And Peter here, he's, he's talking. And he's talking about how Moses represented the law and Elijah the prophets. And Jesus pointed to them both. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here and I fulfilled both the prophets and I fulfilled the law. And I am revealed in, in, in God's glory as God shone down on him. And Peter, in verses 12 through 15, he's using first person singular. Let me illustrate. Verse 12, I will not be negligent. Verse 13, I think it meet. Verse 15, I must put off. Uh, verse, that was verse 14. Verse 15, I will endeavor. Okay, but then he shifts from first person singular to first person plural. And now in verse, the very next verse, verse 16, he says this, and this is important. He says, we have not followed. We may know. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This voice that came from heaven, verse 18, he said, we heard him and we were there. You want to know something? I was there. And it wasn't just me. It was John and it was James and it was Moses and it was Elijah. We were all there. We witnessed his glory. What have you witnessed about Athena? Yeah, Who of you saw Zeus do anything? Some great stories, but no eyewitnesses. These aren't fables. The book we deal with tonight, it's not a myth. <laughs> These are great stories and they're real stories too. Yeah. Every single one of them. You want to know verifiable, verifiable truth, it's Jesus Christ. Because he proved it to people who saw it. And Peter says, we saw it. And we heard the voice from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This transfiguration of Jesus Christ was stunning validation 
of his authenticity. And he wasn't a made-up figure. But it wasn't just this doubt about Jesus that was being spread. It was false information being spread about the existing ideas about Christ. So I want you to look at verse 20 with me tonight of the text. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to come back to 19 and we're going to land. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You don't get to say whatever you want to say about the Bible so that it fits your mold. You don't get to do that. That's what they're doing. Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. This wasn't a man-made idea, he says. Be careful that we understand with whom we're dealing. He says, but holy men of God spake as these men were moved by the Holy Ghost. I have a lot of books, some really, really good ones. I have an office back here. I've got a library. I've got hundreds of books. Most of the staff guys do. I have an iPad now. And I have a digital collection of some really great books. And they're good books. But they're not the Bible. There's no book like it. And I can learn a lot from other people. But it's not God's Word. The Bible isn't a result of human ideas and human willpower. Yes, they were involved in the process, but the product that is in God's Word has a character and a quality that far surpasses what any human could ever impose or compose. Why? Well, God Himself was directly involved. Okay, we live in a world where the trust barometer is broken. It's media-saturated, full of delusion, and distraction and fantastical myths and ideas. And we need an objective and unchanging standard of truth. I want to tell you tonight, we have it. It's lasted from one generation to the next. It's going to get us through the millennial generation. It's going to get us through Gen Z, and it'll get us far beyond Gen Z. We have what we need, and we need never forget it. And Peter says this, I want you to remember it, and I want you to put your trust in it. You must put your trust in it. It's objective. It's unchanging. It is the standard of truth. God's Word is God's Word. It doesn't matter who wrote it or in what style they wrote it. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And we need to trust it. And we need to put our faith in it. Okay, and I'm hasting. I know what time it is. And I know it's Mother's Day. This pastor's fault. He, he told me to preach Second Peter. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> we need to remember it. We need to trust it. Okay. Most important point tonight. We need to do it. So verse 19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. If you can trust it, then you need to remember it. And you need to do it. And so he says, take heed. I'm going to stir you up. I want to be like a lightning bolt. I want to break that it through the darkness here. I want you to remember. I want you to pay attention. Take heed. If we have God's truth, then we have to understand its messaging doesn't grow old. It doesn't go out of style. It doesn't need to be updated. 
It has always been true. It always will be true. It's available. It will always be available. It is sure of itself. It doesn't need our approval. It doesn't need our validation. So what's our responsibility? Well, to not just have a casual familiarity with it, but to personally study it, know it, and pay attention to it. Don't just memorize it. Don't just hear it. Pay attention to it. Psalms 119, the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. This isn't some cool image. It's not just a verse for our wanted kids to memorize. Thy word's a lamp unto my feet. It's to be lived out. It's a guide to my path. The choices I make, the attitude that I have, the work that I do, the people that I talk to, how I engage my life and my body and my words and my mind. Let God's word be a lamp. Let it be a guide to your life. And he says, until the day dawn, how long are we supposed to do it? How long are we supposed to hold God's word in this regard? Well, there's coming a point where you can stop. When the day dawns and the day star arises in your heart. And that's the answer. There's the timeline for you. So most interpreters agree that the day in the Old Testament refers to times of judgment and deliverance within Israel's history. And to a climatic visitation from God at the end of history. The parousia. We're going to talk a lot more about it in the weeks to come in chapters 2 and 3. The day is in reference to the day of the Lord. It's a time of judgment. Yes. It's also a time of deliverance and vindication for God's people. And that day Jesus is coming back. He's going to come. It's not a fable. It's real. He's real. It's going to happen. And so Peter references here this transfiguration of Jesus Christ or the revelation of him as a glorious king. And so here he was and those closest to him got to witness this, this, this man that they served and loved wasn't just a man. He was also the son of God and king of kings. And here they see him in splendor and they're shocked and they're afraid and they fall down so much so. And then that moment is over. Jesus has to touch them and say, Peter, it's okay. Get up. Don't be afraid. Peter says, we saw it. And I'm going to tell you, we are going to see it too. And he's coming back in that same light, in that same white garment, in that same awe that those men have. We too will experience who have trusted him as our king. And so he says, keep serving him until that day that he returns. And we see him transfigured once more. And then he says, and then the day star will arise in your heart. Day star is the word phosphorus. And it means light bringer. Specifically, the planet Venus. People in the ancient world thought of Venus as the light bringer because it often appeared just before dawn. And so he says, the morning star is going to rise in your heart. There's a lot of debate over what that means. So let me just tell you what I think. I think the rising of the morning star alludes to the completion of God's transforming work in the lives of his people. What he began in you He's going to complete. And that day star's going to rise one day. Peter says, until that day, he says, you keep at it. You don't intentionally forget. You don't, you don't get to put those things out of mind. You have a responsibility. I'm a dying man. My days are numbered. And this is what I want you to know. Remember what you've been taught. You've already been taught it. You know it. Remember it. Don't forget it. Put your trust in it. In a world of things we can't trust, you can trust this. Put your faith and your trust. Have a foundation for your life. 
Have a guide for your decisions, for your heart, and the things that you do. He's coming back. And until then, we have a responsibility to remember it. We have a responsibility to trust it. We have a responsibility to do what we've been taught. Several years ago, we had an event called Family Track Team. We started, I don't know when this started. It started before I came here on staff, but I came as a summer intern for a couple years before I came on staff. And so me and some of the other interns, we, we created the craziest ideas and we would do some really dumb skits to grab people's attention. So one of those skits, at the time, several, several of our people in our singles group were taking scuba diving lessons. And so we thought it would be really cool if we're at the end of a service and Jeff Dar, who was taking scuba diving lessons, you remember this, Jeff? So we thought this would be really cool if we had Jeff in the bottom of the baptistry behind us here. And at the end of service, we'll talk about family tracking, and then Jeff could be breathing underwater, and he can jump up out of the water and say, don't forget about family track team. And he did it. I mean, we were dumb for the idea. He was dumb for doing it, okay? So, <laughs> so we were equally complicit. And it was, it was great. But I remember thinking, what if, what if the tank dies or doesn't work? Jeff's not going to last more than a few minutes under the water. Oh, look. You can't last in our world without the air that God's Word provides you. We're underwater here. We're in a dark place. That's what Peter said. He wasn't the only apostle to use the analogy of light and darkness. This is a dark place. And we're underwater. If you're not connected with your airline to that word, if you're not remembering it, and you're not trusting it, and you're not doing it, you're not going to last long. Because survival of the fittest, baby, know where the predators are. Know where the food is. Remember.